It's Wednesday, April 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As we continue to monitor the effects that social distancing and closing down large parts of the economy is having on the country, we are beginning to see a second round of layoffs. People who thought they were safe are increasingly facing unemployment. Employees working from home, government employees, and some healthcare workers are all in danger. Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for round two of job losses. Next, worries about the food supply are growing after the world's biggest pork processing plant had to close its doors due to coronavirus. Smithfield Foods in South Dakota has seen nearly 300 of its employees contract COVID-19 and will be closed for at least two weeks. South Dakota did not have a stay-at-home order in place, and workers there had been calling for more personal protective equipment. Alex Gangitano, reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Finally, Joe Biden has picked up a pair of crucial endorsements in his run for president. President Barack Obama and Senator Bernie Sanders have both come out in support of Biden. In his endorsement, Obama also addressed the coronavirus pandemic and called out the GOP and the administration for lack of action. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, joins us for what this means for the transition to the general election. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The economy essentially had to shut down due to social distancing. So restaurants closed, bars closed. A lot of places had to shut their doors and that prompted an immediate round of layoffs. Now what we're seeing is that other businesses are starting to say, okay, we're really not sure what's happening and we're going to have to make layoffs as well. And this is hitting different industries. Joining us now is Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Harriet. Hi, good to be here. Groups of states on both coasts right now are working on plans to reopen their economies, open their states back up. President Trump and the administration are also working on plans. They want to get things going as soon as possible. So we're constantly keeping an eye on the economy and how it's doing. Unfortunately, it's not doing very well at all. We've had this first round of big layoffs from all these businesses, people that were tied to restaurants, malls, hotels, other places that closed to contain the coronavirus pandemic. But what's going to happen now is we're going to see a second wave of job losses. And these are people that thought, hey, I'm going to be safe. I'm an essential employee. Our business is going to continue throughout this. So we're going to see another big hit coming. Harriet, tell us a little bit about it. What we kind of might be heading into right now is kind of the economic contraction part of this downturn. So we had this big shock when the economy essentially had to shut down due to social distancing. So restaurants closed, bars closed. A lot of places had to shut their doors and that prompted an immediate round of layoffs. Now what we're seeing is that other businesses are starting to say, "Okay, we're really not sure what's happening and we're going to have to make layoffs as well. And this is hitting different industries. So this could be healthcare workers that are not essential, for instance, let's say people working in dental offices or architects, office designers, contractors, lawyers. In this time of people really being on hold in a lot of ways, there might be fewer M&A deals, so you need fewer lawyers to work on that type of work. So the next jobs report we'll get will be for April, and it's likely to show cuts to a lot of these business services workers. We already have nearly 17 million Americans that have tried to get unemployment benefits in the past three weeks. Some of the economists that you guys surveyed there at the Wall Street Journal said that they expect maybe 14.4 million jobs will be lost in the coming months. We did this survey a couple of weeks ago, and given what we're seeing in jobless claims since then, that almost looks like an optimistic forecast. We're now seeing projections of close to 30 million jobs. 
And that's including in industries beyond those that have been ordered to close just because other types of employers are just seeing less work and less activity. It's just so hard to predict how and when we can do this safely and effectively. So the biggest wild card is how long is this all going to last? Some other experts have said that it could take the labor market five and a half years to fully bounce back. Others have said half of the jobs that have been lost through this could rebound by the end of summer. So it's kind of a big range there. And this is what economists are all stressing is that the reason that we're having this economic downturn is not because there was like a bubble in the economy, you know, or a housing downturn or some sort of problem in financial markets. This is a public health emergency that is causing the situation. So it requires a public health solution. And until the virus spread is contained and until people feel safe to go back to restaurants, go back to work, to take public transit, we just don't know how long it's going to be until the economy gets back to normal. You already mentioned some of the industries that are going to experience some job losses in the second wave, but let's go back and kind of get into some a little more in depth. Basically, you know, businesses that plan to open second locations, PR professionals that we're going to be helping with new projects. You know, a lot of these people are laying off people because projects are dying up right now, or a lot of projects are being put on hold until this whole thing opens back up. That's definitely the case. And that's a knock-on effect throughout the economy. We even saw this a few weeks ago when there wasn't a widespread shutdown, but certain things were starting to be cancelled. So for instance, we saw that South by Southwest was cancelled in Austin, and that had a huge impact on everybody in the city from musicians to Airbnb hosts to truck drivers. There is this trickle-down effect that you see when large sections of the economy start to close down. Another interesting one was that many healthcare workers are being laid off. Essentially, what's happened in a lot of hospitals is that because of the public health emergency with coronavirus, they've cancelled non-elective procedures in order to have bed space for people who are critically ill and also to prevent critically ill patients from infecting people who might be coming in for elective surgery. So all of those surgeries have been cancelled and that is a huge source of revenue for many hospital systems. And it's also idling. A lot of nurses are seeing that hours cut and sort of lab technicians are seeing that hours cut and that has come as a surprise because the healthcare sector has generally been a pretty steady employer. That was one of the first things that happened in all of this was the elective surgeries, things that were being canceled. They said, hey, don't go out there because it's, it's dangerous. So that was one of the first things that took effect. The other uh, big thing is you're thinking right now, there's a huge government response on a lot of this, but state and local municipalities are having to lay off hundreds of workers. And in a sense, it's this kind of shift where the money is still coming from the state and the government but they're shifting it because now these people are going on to unemployment. And the longer that we see the businesses shut down, that results in a big drop in tax receipts for state and local governments. So that does mean that they have to make hard choices about employment. Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This is by far the uh, hottest spot that we've got in South Dakota. The vast majority of our new cases the last three or four days are coming from this situation here. Um, but we are dealing with it. We're aggressively testing in that area. So that's why we're identifying more positive cases there. Joining us now is Alex Gangitano, reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this pork processor, Smithfield Foods in South Dakota, there's concerns about food supply right now after an outbreak there forced them to close down this outbreak of COVID-19 there. Reports have said that about 300 of the employees 
at this pork processing plant have come down with coronavirus and it led them to close down who knows how long, probably at least a couple weeks maybe so people can get better and they can clean up. But there's concerns that this pork processor could affect the food supply. I think they're the biggest pork processing facility in the country. They account for up to 5% of U.S. pork production. Alex, tell us a little bit more about this. Smithfield itself is the world's biggest pork processor. And this closed plant, like you said, is 5% of the pork production in the U.S. So the CEO of Smithfield has said it will be at least two weeks that they're closed. And he actually right away warned of potential meat shortages. We've seen Tyson's Food, Cargill, GBS, other meat facilities also have to shutter some of their plants because workers have gotten sick. The interesting thing about this Smithville plant is it actually accounts for over half of South Dakota's overall coronavirus cases are just workers at this plant alone. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how long they actually do shut down. I wonder if two weeks was thinking a little too positively here with how bad the situation is. And a lot of the conversation around this goes back to PPE, personal protective equipment. There was calls before this actually happened for more of that equipment for these uh, processing plant workers. And they said that there's no social distancing for them there at the plant. They're working in very close proximity to other people. There are already calls, like you said, that situations at these plants before we even knew what the coronavirus was were too tight of quarters, you know, and people were working on top of each other and didn't feel safe. And now there aren't masks for them. The workers aren't standing six feet apart from one another. They're still using their break rooms, which they're all in a closed room together. That is probably relatively small in comparison to the people having to stand six feet away. So we've heard calls now from consumer advocacy groups and labor groups that have said it's up to the Trump administration and the Labor Department to provide these, especially because these are truly essential workers, you know, in order to keep the food supply in our country flowing, make people feel comfortable about the food supply and the safety of the meat they're buying at the grocery store and the pork they're buying. There needs to be these personal protective equipment available to these folks and more precautions in place. The FDA has tried to calm those worries about people getting sick from buying these products and whatnot. People have said it's more dangerous to go to the actual supermarket and pick up these products than than actually getting sick from the food itself. So there should be no worry on that front, at least. I spoke to a scientist who agreed with the FDA and said that he is still actively looking for evidence of foodborne coronavirus transmission, you know, just to be extremely sure. But basically at this point, is more dangerous to go to the grocery store, I guess, and get sick by another person that might be in there and infect you than it is to eat meat that you buy at the grocery store. And so I think people hopefully feel better about that. But then there's always the general fear and anxiety that so much of the country is experiencing right now that you hear closures at plants like this, you hear about these cases of so many of the workers having it. And so maybe you're less likely to buy these foods just out of fear, which doesn't help getting food and people staying satisfied, but also the overall supply chain and getting food moving off the shelves and into people's homes. So, you know, it hurts all of that. Right. And, you know, people have that image in their heads already of empty shelves in the stores. And, and so concerns about food supply are legitimate. Right now, it doesn't seem like there's an emergency on that front, but who knows how long this lasts. I know the National Pork Producers Council already said that their industry has been decimated by this. Uh, shutdowns, restaurant closures, labor shortage, all of that. 
And wrapped in all of this, we look at a bunch of states. I think the statistic was 90% of Americans are at stay-at-home orders. South Dakota, the governor there was one of the ones that had resisted ordering a stay-at-home order. This was uh, Governor Christy Noem. So she's getting a lot of heat for that as well. This processing plant in particular is located in Sioux Falls. And the mayor there said that I'm trying to do the best I can, but without a statewide order, it's basically means nothing. Her point was that the situation at one part of South Dakota is obviously extremely far away from another town in South Dakota. So why treat them all at the same level as opposed to having a more targeted approach? But then there's also the fact that it might take somebody who lives in one part of the state could be a matter of miles away from the closest hospital. And so you have to think about it from that level, too. That's why she's getting a lot of pushback, you know, in such rural states right now. Hospital, the hospital beds and workers aren't as plentiful if there's an outbreak like we've already seen. Alex Gangitano, reporter yep. at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. Joe helped me manage H1N1 and prevent the Ebola epidemic from becoming the type of pandemic we're seeing now. He helped me restore America's standing and leadership in the world. Joe has the character and the experience to guide us through one of our darkest times and heal us through a long recovery. Joining us now is Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me. Wanted to update briefly on the Joe Biden campaign for president. In two days, he got two very important endorsements First, from Senator Bernie Sanders, who had dropped out of the race a bit ago. He gave him a full-throated endorsement, came on one of his little webcasts and said he's the guy for president against President Trump. And then we had the big one. Former President Barack Obama also endorsed Joe Biden for his White House bid. Zach, tell us what President Obama had to say about it. So President Obama was obviously effusive in his praise for his former vice president, but he also took the notable step of making sure to contrast Joe Biden and with uh, President Donald Trump that he said, look at the pandemic happening right now. Who do you want in the White House leading something like this? You don't want somebody like Trump. And he didn't really explicitly mention President Trump by name, but he certainly drew that comparison. He said this administration is not prepared. Joe Biden is prepared to lead the country. He was very forceful in that. You know, he said the crisis has reminded us that government Mm -hmm. matters and it reminded us that good government matters, facts and science matters. He went down a big list of things as you mentioned, not calling out President Trump, but basically calling out how much he was lagging early on. And he said that Joe has the character and experience to lead us through one of the darkest times and heal us through a long recovery. So people have said that this was kind of in the works. They knew that once Bernie Sanders got out, that it would only be a matter of time before Obama stepped in. But this is also his kind of reemergence into the public, into the political arena. He had stayed pretty quiet throughout the entire nominating process. He stayed incredibly quiet, with the exception, I can, I can think of one or two forums he appeared at, that he made references to the primary, never mentioned a candidate specifically by name. But now he's emerging, and it's at an important moment for uh, Vice President Biden, too, because Biden and his campaign have predictably, not their fault, but have struggled to break through the news right now, because there is a unprecedented historic pandemic going on in this country, and the presidential campaign has kind of taken the back seat for two days in a row now. Joe Biden has gotten an incredibly prominent endorser first, Senator Sanders, and now President Obama, that have people talking about a campaign again, which is important to remind people that there is still a presidential race going on. It was a 12-minute video, and he endorsed 
Joe Biden, obviously, he also talked about coronavirus a lot. He said that Joe helped him manage H1N1 and prevent the Ebola epidemic from becoming the type of pandemic we're seeing now. So he gave him an endorsement on that front also, uh, in handling these crises. And he also endorsed the former vice president's handling of the economic recovery. When President Obama first took office, they had to handle a recession. And that probably will play in largely into the next election is how can the country economically recover from this crisis from this pandemic? It's different underlying reasons for why we have an economic shortfall right now, certainly. But that'll be a major talking point for this election is how does the country move forward from this virus and how does it recover economically? And that's something that President Obama spoke to for Vice President Biden as well. What does this all do for party unity? Because when Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden, they went back and forth. They talked about how they've disagreed before, but they're friends. He implored a lot of his supporters to help out Joe Biden. And the same thing for President Obama. He also praised Bernie Sanders. He called him an American original and pleaded for everybody to jump behind the Joe Biden campaign. So I know they're very important endorsements, but do they help for party unity? Are are the Bernie Sanders supporters going to come over and support Joe Biden? I've always been a skeptic of how much any individual endorsement matters, especially in a primary. But something like this, you got to figure if there's two endorsements in the Democratic primary that are going to matter, it was Bernie Sanders. And it is now Barack Obama is still one of the most widely beloved figures among Democrats. I think he's second only to his wife, former First Lady Michelle Obama, the two widely beloved figures. And Bernie Sanders is probably right up there as long, too. And it's important that former President Obama and Biden's campaign have made overtures to Bernie Sanders to say, look, we hear you. We're not casting you aside, we're not ignoring you. 2016 was an incredibly contentious, so we shall say, primary process, and everyone is doing their best on the Democratic side right now to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. There was even some people in the Sanders campaign, some officials there that said, I don't endorse Joe Biden. He doesn't endorse Medicare for all and things like that. So it might be tough for all of the supporters to come through. But then again, you have to position it as what is the other choice? The other choice is President Trump. So this now throws us full on into kind of this general election mode. I think it was Jonathan Martin from The New York Times said Democrats aren't in disarray. It's not been since 2004 that the Democratic Party has rallied behind somebody this early. So that's kind of an interesting thing to note is that it is very early in this, even though we have a pandemic going on and campaigning has completely changed. They do have their presumptive nominee. Democrats have the presumptive nominee. And of course, they'll never, ever, ever get 100 percent unity. No party is ever going to have everyone fall in line. You know, of course, there's still some never Trump Republican. And even think back to 2008, though, some of Hillary Clinton's diehard supporters didn't end up supporting then Senator Obama. They fought all the way through the convention and there was a lot of bad blood there, too. So there'll never, ever be a perfect unity in any political party. But the job of these people making these endorsements and pushing for these endorsements is to try to bring as much people into the tent as possible. I think it was something like 85% of Sanders supporters ultimately voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. That's a pretty high number. But can you chip away at that 15%, basically? Can you get that number down to 10% of people who voted for somebody else in the primary to ultimately support the nominee? That's the goal with these endorsements. And that's what they're trying to do by doing it so early. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
was your daily dive.